<laughs> and my notes are blank. And I can't read them anyway. Well, I'm an alcoholic, and I did not decide to be one. Being an alcoholic and a member of AA was not on my must-do list. <laughs> and yet I hear some AAs think, geez, the day they were born, they were planning it. Well, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't know what the hell one was to start with. And I don't know much about it. I'm an alcoholic of the garden variety. I uh, have a lot of related disorders. <laughs> God, you can make a lot of money these days on related disorders, you know. Jeez, as soon as you mention related disorders, six psychologists come out of the woodwork. We're big in Canada on related disorders. I, I sent an alcoholic to one of our treatment centers, and I use that term very loosely for this one. And God, they got him, oh, he got all his related disorders. He was about the most related fellow I ever saw, but he died from drinking. <laughs> By God, they'd forgot to tell him to quit drinking. Now, I don't know whether I was born an alcoholic or not, and I really don't care a great deal. But I'm Irish, and I was born thirsty. <laughs> and uh, that gives you a head start. My father was an alcoholic. Uh... He was, uh, we didn't call it alcoholism. I don't know really what we called it. It varied depending on his mood and manner, what he was called. <laughs> he was a protected alcoholic. Uh, you know, he was, we, well, we hid him. And God, he was six foot three and weighed 260 pounds, and he wasn't easy to hide. But we hid him, and uh, he said he's having one of his spells. <laughs> oh, God. I had a lot of spells, too, for a while. I was born a rebel. I, uh, I've never met an alcoholic who wasn't a rebel. Did you ever meet a drunk who loved authority? <laughs> God, I never did, you know. I never met a drunk who, when a cop stopped him on the highway, said, Oh, officer, I'm so delighted you stopped me. <laughs> We don't say that, drunk or sober. We say, who the hell are you? And I would say, don't you know who I am? And he'd say, no, sir, but we're about to. And I always said, you can't do this to me right after he'd done it. <laughs> I don't know whether I'm an alcoholic or just had a timing problem. But I was born a rebel. And I was also born a coward. Now, they... <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to be a successful rebel, you've got to be gutsy. But if you're a rebel and a coward, you're a disaster looking for a place to happen. And I was, and it did. But I also had a speech impediment. I couldn't talk. I stuttered so bad till I came to you, I couldn't put two words together. And before the evening's out, you're liable to be praying that it'll return. <laughs> I have one of those sponsors that, uh, that uh, Franklin H. talks about. I think I'll just call him H. from now on. <laughs> one of the mean ones. Tough love, you know. And he phoned me the other day. He's uh, 30 coming up this year. Ross Moore's his name. And he said, God, I loved him the minute I... When I came to AA, I... You know, a lot of you look too healthy for me. And then this turkey walked in. 
He'd been sober eight years, and he still looked half in the bag. He still had that whiskey tan. He looked like a boiled orange. He had his nose all over his face, you know. God, he just looked like he ought to be there. And he also looked like he just got there half hour before me. You know, always oh, beautiful. Uh, Franklin knows him and, uh, and uh, Ramona and uh, some of the gals. And uh, I often told him, he got the nose, he tripped over a lot of curbs or something. I said, Ross, for God's sake, why don't you get your nose fixed? He said, I did. It used to be over here. <laughs> but I loved the way he looked, and uh, I loved the way he talked, and I loved the way he smiled, and I loved the way his eyes shined. You see, I'm an eye reader. And if you're new in AA and you haven't got a sponsor yet, uh, you find yourself one with smiling eyes who's a little mean. Don't get a nice one. They'll kill you. Get a mean one. Mine's mean. He didn't say all those nice things to me. God, he'd phone up and say, how are you feeling today? And I'd say, oh, God, Ross. I don't know. There's something wrong. I don't know and I just knew he was going to say, oh, Jesus, I'll be right over. He never said that. He said, well, what ain't going your way now? And I'd hang up the phone. And he'd phone back, and I'd say, hello, and he'd go, hee, hee, hee. <laughs> I'd say, you son of a... Hang up again. And he'd phone back and say, you ready? <laughs> And I loved him. I was a rebel and a coward and I couldn't talk. I never really felt a part of anything in the business of living. Part of my family or part of my peer group. And I don't know why, it was just the way it was. You know, I long since quit looking around for reasons. I still uh, see the odd professional who's trying to look for the... the, the God, I love it. The root of the problem. <laughs> I think even if I found the root, it wouldn't matter a hell of a lot because I've buried a few fellows who found the root of the problem and decided they could drink a little. And I'm getting tired of being a pallbearer for those fellows who are social drinking. I never met a social drinker who died from drinking. I never met a social drinker in a detox ward. They don't get toxed enough to get detoxed. But I got a friend in one not long ago. God, he was laying in there, and they'd forgot to, you know, in detox wards, they, they have those, those uh, uh, carts that they, they can break. You know, and they forgot to break his. And I was in giving him a pitch, and he was vibrating. And geez, he was going all over the ward, you know. I said, for Christ's sake, can't you anchor this bum, you know? I'm trying to heal him, and you <laughs> I can't catch him. But his problem wasn't drinking. He had a nervous stomach and <laughs> didn't look nervous to me. Threw it about 25 feet. <laughs> he said, I got a weak stomach. I said, not from what I'm seeing. <laughs> God, we're hearing some great things these days. I love that. Guy told me the other day, AA is no longer relative to the illness of alcoholism. I bet you didn't know that. 
And he's been saying that for six years, and we've doubled. It's doubled. We've doubled in North America in six years. You know, somebody was telling me, where's Beth? Where are you, darling? Hello there, sweetie. Somebody's telling me it took uh, from uh, 34, 5, 39, they printed a big book, to 73 to sell the first million, and we sold the second million since 73 till now. So it may not be relative to the illness of alcoholism, but by God, something good is happening. You know, I'm glad they're still selling books. And I love the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, I'm a bookman. I talk a lot about reading the big book. My sponsor would only sell me the big book. He wouldn't sell me that. Well, we didn't have too much then. You know, we had, uh, I think, uh, the 12 and 12 and A come of age just came out on the, on the market. But he wouldn't sell me anything except the big book. He said, I'll tell you when you can read that other stuff. I thought, Jesus. Doesn't he know I'm sick? <laughs> he did. I'm a rebel. I'm a coward. Can't talk. Never felt part of my life. My mother and father never did anything in their life to deliberately harm me, hurt me, or humiliate me in any way. But I always felt like I was living on the fringe of life and of the human race. Because my father was a yeller. He was a very successful man, a very dynamic guy. He was about six foot three, about 250, bald as an eagle. Bald as beautiful. You may not know that, but it is. <laughs> and... We couldn't communicate. I don't think it was his fault or mine. It wasn't the stutter. It was, there was just not too much there. They, they loved me to death, nearly to death, later in my drinking days. Uh, they did everything for me that had to be done, except we couldn't communicate. Now, I didn't know this at the time. I thought everybody lived that way, kind of feeling that they were standing on the wall somewhere, ready to fall off or in. I was the guy who was 14 or 15 at the high school dance who was... Friday night, well, we, I don't know about you, but we don't have high school dances in Canada anymore. Booze uh, <laughs> blew that out the window. And them, that Mara Wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, but I was the guy in the high school dance at 14 or 15, however old I was, who was standing there with his, against the wall of the gymnasium with his shoes glued to the floor and a bowling ball in my belly, a terrible blackness inside, and a smile on my face. You see, for in the early and middle stages of alcoholism, sometimes a smiling is, is a defense mechanism. You're dying inside, but if you look like that, everybody comes and say, what the hell's the matter with you? And you don't know. So you smile. Don't show a lot of porcelain. It doesn't mean they're happy, it just means they want to stay the hell away. And even if they'd asked me how I was because I couldn't talk, I'd, I'd, I'd figure what the hell. But, oh, God, it's a lousy feeling. And I don't think it's unique to AAs. I think if you're living with alcoholism, I've spent a lot of time with Alateens and Alanons, and, and I know that we don't have any unique feelings in Alcoholics Anonymous. None at all. What we felt as a result of the direct illness of alcoholism, you felt as a direct, indirect result of the illness. There's no doubt. Years ago, when Alan first started, God, I remember how condescending we were in AA. And some of the old cardinals in my town still are, you know. Alanon. <laughs> so I stand up and tell them that I'm an alcoholic and a member of AA who has two Alanon sponsors. And God, that does curl their hair. 
And after the meeting, they get off in the corner and buzz a little. And I hear them saying, he'll never make it. And I think I've kept him sober worrying about me. But I do, because I found out that from Elsa, who's one of them in my dear friend and home, I found out how to allow my family to live and be what they are and allow them the uniqueness of the individuality that they have. And I've learned from Al-Anon the ability to release with love that I didn't find for whatever reason in AA. So I love Al-Anon and I love Alateen and I think you see, I know, you see as many miracles as we do. As many miracles as Alcoholics Anonymous. And God, we used to say things like, Oh, aren't these Alanons wonderful? They came here for a lesser reason. The hell they did. They came here for exactly the same reason. Survival? Survival. You either came to Alanon or you died, or they bagged you and put you in a rubber room somewhere. Because you go crazy quicker than we do. That <laughs> go ahead, tell that. Clap on that one, yeah. Because we got the tranquilizer we're drinking. When things get rough, we have a little couple of drinkies and things are good. You know, but you're living with a dingbat who's coming unwrapped. And if you don't start popping those pellets, uh, you know, you go crazy real quick. So you got to get Al-Anon or Alateen. And I, I know you see as many miracles as we do. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I've never seen a turnaround in people's lives just as magnificent in Al-Anon and Alateen as it is in AA. Why not? They're using the same program. They got the same illness, even though it's handed to them. Why do people think that, Alan, you know, that this program will only work for drunks? Why do they think that? You ought to see the families of those guys that say that. Holy gee. The kids march in like a platoon of infantry. <laughs> I can always tell them, you know, I have a few friends that I didn't know whether they were drunks or not. You know, I didn't know whether they were drunks or nuts. You know, I never saw them drinking too much, but the fact, you know, I thought, Jay-Z, you know, well, no, I, sh I shouldn't say that. He, he drinks a lot, you know, but I don't know whether he's an alky, you know. And some of those guys puzzle us, don't they? Geez, they drink like a tank car, you know, but everything seems to be going pretty good. Well, the ultimate test is go home with them. You know, wangle an invitation. And they know I'm a good eater, so I always get one. And, geez, I walk in the house of some of these people, you know, and if it's an alky's home, you know what it's like. You know, geez, they open the door, and there she is on a broom. You think no wonder the poor guy gets loaded down there. And the kids scurry like pack rats and peek at you all night from beneath the door, seeing if he's another one of those. And they sit around all night trying to convince you how good things are. Now, if things are good, you don't have to convince anybody. If they're not alcoholics, just heavy drinkers, you walk into a household of love and understanding and sharing and caring, and you can tell. You know, you can feel alcoholism. You don't always see that guy belting that sauce back. You can feel it. Jesus, <laughs> How you doing, girl? As Clancy says, out drops the bullets, you know. 
So I was the guy who was standing there with a terrible thing inside of me, dying to be in the middle where you were, my peers, dancing and singing and doing whatever you were doing, but I couldn't move. I had a terrible fear of rejection and a terrible necessity for approval. So I just stood there and died till I found booze. And I remember the week after I took my first drink, I'm back at the high school dance. And let me go back a little. When we were in Wichita with Clancy, a year and a, just a year ago, last Easter. And I, Clancy and I are old friends. I've heard him a hundred times, and he's heard me. And I heard him talk that day in Wichita. And I, I loved it. He did a hell of a job. But I was listening to the tape that I got of his talk, and something jumped out at me. And Clancy said something's made more sense to me in a long time than all the garbage I've been hearing from these geniuses in the field of alcoholism. What does booze do for the alcoholic it doesn't do for the rest of the drinking population? You know, we know what booze does for everybody. Booze is an anesthetic. It's cataloged as an anesthetic. In the old days in the Navy, if you got a cannonball in your leg, they give you two quarts of pus or rum because you couldn't feel nothing. Cut your leg off. Your wife would say, my, you were feeling no pain last night. She doesn't know how accurate that was. Because it is. It's medically cataloged as an anesthetic. You drink too much sauce, you go to sleep. That's why I've always been interested in the relationship that the human race in the Western world particularly, but not only there, has in the relationship between drinking whiskey and masculinity. You know, if you're drinking an anesthetic, how the hell is that going to relate, you know? If you drink too much anesthetic, you go to sleep. And before you go to sleep, parts of you go to sleep. And years ago, I heard that wino down in Tyler say that Shakespeare wrote about that. Uh, Shakespeare, I'm convinced, was a wino. I agree with Joe Lee. No way in the world could you write about wine and the things you see drinking wine like Shakespeare did without <laughs> being of us. And Shakespeare wrote about wine and sex. He said, wine provoketh the desire and retardeth the performance. <laughs> And I thought, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was timing. See, you spend three days drinking and chasing, and you finally catch up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Nothing. Like Franklin. <laughs> what do you say? Whoops. You know. <laughs> 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 so I've never been able to understand that, but I, I, I was conditioned that way, you know. I was conditioned to believe your masculinity was measured in ounces. You know, you couldn't drink and weren't a man, there was something the matter with you, and everything was related to drinking booze. I've discovered since I came to this fellowship that all you really got to have to drink a large amount of sauce is a big mouth of which I'm more than adequately supplied. <laughs> I got to watch my teeth. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a rebel. I'm a coward. I, I couldn't talk sober. Uh, I uh, got a big mouth. And I've always been grateful since I came to AA for my cowardice because uh, I, I really believe <laughs> that if I hadn't been a coward, I'd have never lived to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I was the guy that started a fight in the bar and then ran out in the sidewalk <laughs> and ticked at you and said, 
and the policeman came by, and I said, isn't that disgraceful? <laughs> well, a couple of times never got out quite quick enough, which is why I've had a long and enduring relationship with the dental profession. <laughs> I never did figure out, you know, it's very difficult to go home after a couple of days alcoholic survey, and you're missing a couple, and you can't remember where they went. So you give them the door treatment, and somebody tripped you, and... Because I never did really figure out a good way to tell my family when they said, what happened to your teeth? <laughs> God, they ask the damnedest questions, don't they? That I sold them. <laughs> said, your teeth? Said, yeah, I'm a... An old friend lost a couple, so I gave them mine. <laughs> but I never did figure out how the hell you go home and say, what happened to your teeth? And say... Well, I, you know, if you're going to tell them the truth, you say, well, I was resting. <laughs> and somebody stepped on my face. <laughs> now, there ain't no way you can say that and come out looking like you're too tightly wrapped, you know. <laughs> so I'd give them all that garbage. So Clancy said that what booze does for us, it doesn't do for the rest of the drinking population. He said this, and it makes sense. He said that when you and I take a drink, the alcoholic, not the social drinker, heavy drinker, hard drinker, Saturday night drunk, the alcoholic, what it does for us is this, that it changes our relationship with our environment without changing either us or our environment. Now let's go back to the wall of the high school dance. There I am, the prodigal, standing, shoes nailed to the floor, smile on my face. A bowling ball in my belly. Dying to be in the middle where the action was. Fear of rejection, necessity for approval. Dying inside. And the guy comes along and says, hey, baby, you like a little drink? I said, yeah, away we went. Went out the car, had a couple of belts, whatever he was belting, and came back in. All of a sudden, <laughs> we got a new deal going here. <laughs> I changed and you changed, but you didn't. But my relationship with you changed. I am exactly the same person in exactly the same pile of bricks and mortar with exactly the same citizens, but all of a sudden, our relationship is different. I'm not afraid anymore. I don't care if you reject me. I go ask some doll to dance. He's not on a dance. He's I will not dance you anyway, you old blister. And my whole relationship with the world changed. I didn't and it didn't, but our relationship did. And I thank God that Clance said this. Makes sense to me, and I just throw it at you, put her in the hopper, see if it makes sense. If it doesn't, throw her out, and if it does, do whatever you like with it. But I think it does. It affects us. I took my first drink at 14. Jeez, we're getting to AA at 12, 13, and 14. You know, we're talking somewhere the other day. <laughs> I, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was 28 years old, and I ran around for about three years saying I came AA at a very early age. Geez, if you get to AA over 25 today, you're an instant cardinal. <laughs> they say, what you wait so long for? You know, I'm sponsoring one, 15, two years sobriety. You know, some of them old turkeys still don't think they, she belongs, but she does. Yeah, they say, <laughs> She said, how am I going to handle those old boys? I said, just give them them warm fuzzies. 
You just keep smiling at them boys, you'll kill them. Say, what are you doing here, kid? <laughs> I've smelt more than you've drank. And she says, well, sir, if you'd have drank it instead of spilled it, you could have got here a hell of a lot quicker. <laughs> we don't hear that too much today because we don't have to hear it anymore. We know that the kid who gets here at 15 belongs here when he gets here, she. Just as much as the 40, 50, or 60 gets here. My father gave him my first drink. He was with him. My father's six foot three or four. I'm five ten, give or take quarter. I was nearly as big physically when I was fourteen as I am now. I had a little more in the top, a little less in the middle. But I built like a Mack truck. Smart as hell. Good looking. And humble. My sponsor says, you mean a kind of an all-around pain in the ass. <laughs> I said, that about does it, yes. And I remember I was driving the car down a country road. We were out shooting or hunting or whatever the hell we were doing. My father was sober. He'd had a bottle of beer, but he was sober. He stopped. Now, remember, I'm tied into the masculinity bit. I'm tied into the maturity bit and drinking. My father says, pull over to the side of the road. I did. He said, would you like a bottle of beer? And I'll never forget as long as I live the feelings I had inside when he offered me a drink. I just knew that he felt at that time that I had arrived somewhere in my maturity and my masculinity and my manhood that now I could drink. I was conditioned this way. Nobody said it. That's just we got it, didn't we? It's osmosis, sort of, you know. And I suggested I'd never had a drink before. I don't know why. There's always booze in my home. There still is. My old 83-year-old mother and my got a phone to her last night to, to see how she was. She'd been very sick, but she's better than me now. And the doctor, she was, he was, she was taking some medication, and we got her off all that garbage, and, uh, and now he's going to let her have a little drink again. My, my mother just loves a, a little drink of scotch. And uh, so I phoned her last night. I said, how are you doing? I said, she went to see the doctor. He said, <laughs> she didn't say what the doctor said. He said that I can have a drink of scotch every night. And I said, well, what can I bring you back? She says, stop at the duty-free store at the border and bring me a 40 at J&B. <laughs> I said, honey, that's a symptom. You know, you better go back to Al-Anon quick. So it's a, uh, I was there, but I never drank blue. I don't know why. Who cares, you know? Who the hell, geez, I remember all the moralists when I first came to AA 22 and a half years ago. Said, where'd you get your first drink, son? I said, my father got, ha ha! If he hadn't given it to you, you wouldn't have been. I said, oh, you. <laughs> God, I love that. That's going to get me off the hook. I wouldn't try that at home. But I'm not going to tell him the story first. So I took a bottle of beer, and I was sitting on this side of the car with my feet out, and my father was on the other side of a beautiful afternoon. And I took a sip of the beer, and I thought, oh, God, what have seen that, you know? And I took another one and began to find out. God, it was good. Remember that? Oh, gee. <whistles> Drank down the first bottle of beer, stole the second bottle of beer of my life right out from under my own man's nose. Now, I don't know if you're an instant alcoholic, but you're an instant bandit. 
Larceny sets in from the first belt. I stole the second beer and I drank it down, and by this time I'm a tagger. God, I'm feeling good. Got a whole new me going. I got up and walked around the car, but this time old dad's standing up. Again, five foot ten, six foot three. Always felt intimidated by him, always afraid of him. Couldn't talk, communicate. And I walked around the car for the first two beers of my life, and my daddy was standing up, and I looked at him, and a wonderful thing had happened to him. He had shrunk. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I thought, now what the hell am I been worrying about you for all this time? He didn't look so big or so mean or so tough or so smart, and I proceeded to tell him so. And that was my first mistake as a practicing alcoholic. <laughs> well, my father, as I said, was a very successful man, and he didn't get successful by arguing with dingbats. And I'm a blah, 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 you know, and he hadn't heard me talk before. All of a sudden, two beers, and here's Junior coming around, blah, 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 you know. And I remember him looking at me, you know. You have to say, huh? <laughs> like Kojak, you know, huh? <laughs> he thought, holy Jesus, well, you dropped a button here. <laughs> I finished the lecture, and he said, get in the car and let's go home. We went home. I went to bed that night, and he did. Got up in the morning feeling like a million dollars, two beers didn't do anything for you. What? And then I got to thinking, God, I agree with you on that sign we got in the AA club room. Said, think, think, think. We're starting a society to ban it was thinking that nearly killed me, you know? And I got to thinking, hey, I think I got that old boy now. And I went down the hall of my room to his room, and he was there, he was laying in bed, and I opened the door like Loretta Young, you know, <laughs> and said, hey! And scared the hell out of myself. Jeez, I'd never said that within a block of my old man. I looked around to see who'd said it, you know. And praying, Jesus, I hope it's still working, you know. And he looked up as if to say, holy, Jesus, still going on, you know. <laughs> then he rolled over, sat on the bed, stood up, and oh, God, there he was. Again. And I thought, oh, Jesus. And I said, now, yesterday I can handle this old boy, and today I can't. What's the difference between then and now? I got to thinking, you see. The answer was two beers. I said, excuse me, sir. Ran downstairs, had two beers, came back up, down he came. And I finished the lecture. And that was fine. He never said anything again. He was a pretty intelligent guy, you know. He didn't do you know, Jesus. Looks like old Junior's about two bricks short of a load here. <laughs> he looked all right till now, but I think he's popped one. And I went back to my room feeling like a million dollars, and I got to thinking again. Jesus, you gotta watch that thinking. You know, if you're gonna drink, don't think. It's all right after you get here, but if you ain't sure, geez, don't think. Cut her off. Kill you. And I thought, now, God, if that stuff will handle the old man, allow me to handle father, it'll allow me to handle mama, because at 14, the old girl gives you a little hassle and occasion, and it'll handle girls and boys and preachers and teachers and conditions and circumstances, and of course it does, and you broaden out the influence. <clears throat> but this kind of a snarky deal comes in here. You know, at 14, it took two beers to hit me to handle father and shrink him sufficiently. At 16, it took 10. Not to get him any lower, just to get him where he did the first two beers. Kind of a crummy deal when you think of it. You'd think if two beers would shrink him two beers, four beers would, uh, you know, if two beers would shrink him two inches, four would shrink him four inches, six, and if you didn't run out of beer, you'd get him the hell out of the way altogether. 
But you know, from the first day to the day I got to you, he never shrank more than two inches, no matter how much I drank. And of course, the last seven or eight years, he never shrank at all. It's a bum deal. It takes more to get the same effect over a period of time, not a better effect, the same effect. So at 16, it took six beers. At 18, it took a quart and a half. And at 19, it, I was diagnosed by some idiot doctor in my town as a chronic alcoholic. Imagine that. Young, smart, good-looking, intelligent, come from a nice family. And this dingbat said, my boy. Of course, that got me right there, you know. I, when you said, my boy, you were dead. Or Junior. Jeez, I hated Junior. My sponsor still calls me Junior. He knows I hate it. Because at home, if they, I was Tommy, great, things were good. Tom, oh, pretty good. Thomas, trouble. Junior, out. <laughs> this doctor said, my boy, you're a chronic alcoholic. I don't know what the chronic alcoholic is today. I have no idea. Never heard of chronic pregnancy, chronic alcoholism. <laughs> You either is or you ain't. That's simple as that. And I immediately huffed up. I'd got sober two days before I went to him, so he wouldn't know I drank. I wasn't shaking, shivering. I had a lovely tan, legitimate. And I told him what I thought of his medical abilities. I gave him the names of a couple of medical colleges I thought he ought to go back to. And I had a suggestion as to what he could do with his practice. And he said he couldn't do that. And I've always felt we could have worked something out. <laughs> or in. But I think about this today and have a lot of fun at that guy's expense. That's 30 years ago. 31 years ago. A doctor diagnosed a 19-year-old kid as an alcoholic. We don't have 20 doctors in my town of uh, 650,000 people today who diagnose a 19-year-old kid as an alcoholic. They tell him he's going through a phase, smarten up, straighten out your act. Quack, quack, quack. We got a lot of doctors in my town who treat alcoholics think they suffer from a Valium deficiency. <laughs> Don't quit drinking. Just pop a few of those pellets and you'll be all right. And by God, you will. You'll be fine. You won't know what the hell you're doing, but you won't have to go through the door. You can go right through the transom. Met an old buddy of mine, hasn't had a drink in five years. He says, I'm down to 47 Valium a day now. I'm getting... <laughs> said, how are you feeling? He said, great, and by God, I believe him. I had to keep pulling him down. And... <laughs> and I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't think I was. I wasn't lying to him when I told him he was crazy, and I wasn't lying to me when I told me I'm not an alcoholic, because I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I thought an alcoholic was a 17-year-old, 75-year-old derelict laying in the gutter in Skid Row trying to chin himself on the curb. That's what I thought an alcoholic was. I'm 19, healthy as a hog, come from a nice family, and this idiot, obviously, is a quack. But he was right. And, of course, I did what drunks do. I set out to prove he was wrong. <laughs> That's where you get it. <laughs> alcoholic is the only drinker I ever met that had to prove anything. Did you ever meet a social drinker trying to prove they're a social drinker? I never have. It's always us. <laughs> Hanging in there. 
Can quit any time I want, but I'm no quitter. <laughs> I'd rather die than quit drinking, and by God, he did. It's the only cure I know for alcoholism, quit breathing. So I decided booze wasn't my problem. Winnipeg was, and in January, it gets a little frosty up there. And Father was. If I get the hell away from him, it'd be all right. So I go to Vancouver and quit drinking. So I bought a case of scotch and got on the train <laughs> to, go to, <laughs> to go to Vancouver to quit drinking. Now, that ain't how you do it. And I got to Calgary, and, uh, and I got off the train at an hour and 20 minutes or something in Calgary. I got off the train, went across into the pub, met all the fellas coming from Vancouver going to Winnipeg to quit drinking. I said, you'll never make it there. They said, you'll never make it there. And we didn't. Well, I got to Vancouver. It was like uh, old uh, H said there, uh, you know. I think it's Norm Albee that says everywhere Norm went, Norm went. Well, everywhere Tom went, Tom went. If I could have left me at home and been to Vancouver, I'd have had her licked. But geez, the first guy I met was old Curly. And nobody cooperated. Did they ever cooperate with you? They didn't quit drinking. They didn't close up the booze stores or the bootleggers. And I got just as drunk in Seattle. So I went to San Francisco. Geez, there's a great place to quit drinking. In those days, they used to drive drunks home in San Francisco, if you knew where it was. <laughs> I told a policeman once in San Francisco, he said, where are you staying, son? I said, up one of those hills. <laughs> he said, thanks a lot. <laughs> So I went to Los Angeles, and Phoenix, and Fort Worth, and Dallas, Houston, and New Orleans. Every, I could go straight north from Winnipeg, Canada, and wind up in New Orleans. <laughs> it seemed that every time I either fell off or got off, whatever I was riding on, I was back again. I used to drink with a little Cajun guy in New Orleans. He was about three foot two. He'd never been to school. He couldn't read and write. He was totally devoid of personality. He, he, he was a nothing. He could drink like a tank car. And he has a pistol with a switchblade. Now, if you're a drunk who's a coward with a big mouth, you need one of those fellas. <laughs> and I kept that bum in booze for five years. And finally, he said, Tom, it seems to me you leave just so you can come back. Now, that's logic. He said, well, I'll just stay. So I did a while, and I started having a little trouble with the law down there. They're very narrow. I'm not, I never did much time. I, I got drunk, uh, thrown in the slammer for, for resting. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything. I was just laying around. But you're laying around where you weren't supposed to be laying around. I was having a lot of nervous disorders in those days. And there was a doctor down the quarter I went to see, a nurse who God just flew in on the broom. I said, I want to see the doctor. He's since expanded his business. I've taught him everything he knows about alcoholism. And I said, I have a lot of nervous troubles. He tested me over, and I was sober, and I went there. You know, because you don't want to go to a doctor looking like you've been, you know, drinking. So he uh, went over, and he said, Tom, he said, I think you need more rest. And I agreed. He said, now, I want you to promise me that whenever you get tired, you lay down and rest. 
And I promised him. And I did. Whenever I got tired, down I went. Now, if you're in the middle of the summer, And the cop comes along and says, you can't rest there. And I would say, but my doctor said that. <laughs> he ain't in place. I remember I'm laying out in Jackson Square under a palm tree. God, one day, meditating. I've been meditating there about three days. And, uh, there were several of us meditating there. That we had a little uh, Ernest and Julio going there. God, that stuff ain't all cracked up, I'm telling you. We make better wine on our reservations than the Ernest and Julio. Ours has lumps in it, though. I don't. You just head to the highest tree. You get a suture down to keep you from starving to death. And I'm laying under the palm tree, and one of New Orleans scientists comes over and nudges me and says, Cold said, if you're here, when I get back, we're going to jail. He said, what? I said, let's go. Kind of a dumb cop. And he said, why? I said, because I'm going to be here when you come back. <laughs> he said, why? I said, I can't walk. And I'll be damned if I'll roll down Pirate's Alley. Well, I couldn't, but we could. And away he went, and they threw me in the slammer, and I'd wire my old dad, you know, because I knew he didn't want his only son. That's the only thing we ever agreed with. He didn't, I was his only child. He didn't want his only child in, in the slammer anywhere because it screws up the family image, you know. He couldn't go down with his business associates, and they'd say, Tom, how are you? Fine. How's Tommy? Oh, good, he's doing 30 days in New Orleans. <laughs> so if my father would say he's on a vacation, and they'd say, from what? <laughs> but I'd wire him, and he'd send money, and I'd get out and get drunk and get back in. I only missed New Orleans once. I, I don't know how the hell I missed it. I was going there this time deliberately, and I missed it. Every other time I got there accidentally. One time I was going there, I shot, overshot it. I wound up in Key West. I see a kid from the Navy in Key West here tonight. And I wound up in Key West. You got to wind up in Key West. Hell, ain't nothing else where to go. I checked the map, and the next set of islands is called the Dry Tortugas, and I sure as hell wasn't going there. <laughs> but you know, the thing that was happening was not the jail, and the, because it was just a tank. You know, and it wasn't the... It was what was going on in behind my belly button. I am totally and completely convinced that alcoholism is a feeling disease. It ain't a drinking disease. You got to drink to get it, or to get itself to manifest itself. But it's a feeling disease. That's why we don't have an identity problem with a 15 or 16 or 17 or 80 year old, because they don't identify with us all the time with drinking. I didn't identify with that old sponsor of mine because I drank like he did. Geez, he came to AA, run fresh out of Everton, but the city. I hadn't lost anything. They hadn't given me anything to lose yet. <laughs> but I identified with him because of how he felt, not of how he drank. You see, people have talked to me for years about backbone and willpower and standing up and being a man and turning over new leaves and 
pulling up my socks and sin and salvation and outward manifestations of inward frustrations and environmental disillusionment and psychological maladjustment. And I said, absolutely. God, we had a guy in Canada the other day got his hand in the government till and studied alcoholics. Aren't you getting tired of being studied? I'm studying them now. And Jesus Christ, they're crazier than we are, I'll tell you. This guy took 50 grand out of the government till. He studied us for a while. And I met him on the street. I didn't see him coming or I'd have avoided him sure as hell. He's really, well, he's one of these professionals that should never go out in the daytime. Like a mole. The glasses like the bottom of beer bottles. And, oh, geez, he was a funny little man. And he said, Tom, I've been looking for you. And I thought, oh, geez. He said, I've reached a conclusion. And I thought, God, I'll bet you have. 50,000 bucks in six months. He said, I've come to the conclusion. <laughs> I nearly collapsed. The drinking alcoholics are psychologically maladjusted. He said, what do you think? I said, you can bet your buns were psychologically maladjusted. I could have told you that drunk. It's like the preacher. You don't have to tell we us we're miserable sinners. We know that. That just compounds the guilt. Don't tell me I'm psychologically maladjusted. I know that. If what I was doing was adjusted... <laughs> I don't know where the hell the rest of them were. But, oh, God, what was going in on behind my belly button? To get up in the morning and have to put that front on again and that image, who is it, Johnny Harris, that says we get up in the morning and take ten minutes to shave and an hour to put the image on. Jeez, I fell out of the chair the first time he said that. God, you get all ready for the citizens. You don't want them to know you're drinking too much. You get dressed up like a... <laughs> South Philadelphia pimp and <laughs> Sally Ford smelling like a <laughs> you know what and you're doing good you're going down the street so I said hey baby how you doing and you say fine and hope you can't see behind your belt buckle because there's blackness in there and mush in there and Jesus, I used to walk down the street with friends of mine on Saturday morning, and they were social drinkers. We'd been out drinking the night before. They went home. I never knew that. They came back. I never thought they'd left. <laughs> We'd be walking down the street, and I'd come to an alley and say, excuse me, and I'd go down and, uh, and barf. And they're watching me. And I come back, and they say, uh, you're not feeling good? I said, no, I'm feeling fine. They said, you are? They'd never seen anybody doing that who wasn't sick. I wasn't sick, I was full. God, they're funny people. And then I got to think, oh, that thinking about to kill me. You know, the thing that got me here, I think, was not the, not the buckets and the missing the chances and it was the looks in the eyes of the people I loved and who loved me. Getting up in the morning and looking at them and knowing again you've torn their hearts out by the roots and jumped on it and you can't remember what you did to do it. And I think when we promise them that morning that we'll never do that again, we mean it. 
We mean it as much as we mean anything in the world. Somebody said many years ago in San Antonio that we're as sincere as insane people can be, and I believe that. I really meant it when I said I'll never do that again, and I didn't know I didn't have any defense against it. And it was that awful thing that was going on in behind my belly button, the terrible blackness of the why, 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 and trying not to be what I was. Oh, God, it's a lousy way to go. And I got to thinking maybe the only way I can ever get those people happy is to get me out of the road. And I thought maybe if I get rid of myself, they'll be happy and they won't have to put up with me anymore. And I've come to see that I think suicide is the ultimate ego trip. I really believe that. But I got to thinking this. And I would dwell on it, and, but I was a coward, remember. <laughs> and you got complications. <laughs> and I remember, you know, my family were bridge addicts. My mother and father were bridge addicts. My neighbors, I've never played bridge, because bridge in most people's homes is a quiet evening of bridge. In my home was World War II. I remember sitting at the dinner table and my father would say to my mother, Kay, why don't you ask Don and Betsy over for a quiet evening of bridge and I'd start to shake. Because always I'd wake up at one o'clock, they'd be yelling and screaming and crying and flying saucers and, you know, and I thought, geez, if that's a, a <laughs> recreation, I'll pass, you know. But they were, they were addicts, really, and they were good at it, and they still are. My father's dead many years, but my mother still enjoys the game. And, uh, I remember I was out for about a three-day alcoholic survey. And I came home one night, and my mother had the girls in for bridge. Now, the girls are those sweet little old ladies that you grew up with as you called Auntie, remember? Auntie May and Auntie Pearl and Auntie Mary. And, and if you're an alcoholic, they change. <laughs> in the beginning, they're sweet little old ladies. As your alcoholism progresses, they become nosy old bags. And if you stay sober long enough, they go back to being sweet little old ladies. If they were at the, at the nosy old bag stage. And I thought, God, she's got those three old blisters in there. And I'm out of a four-day growth of beard and stink like eight pole cats. And I'm just bagged to the gills. And I went in to give them a little advice. <laughs> we got lots of advice. Good and bad, about most things we don't know anything about. I don't know anything about bridge. Hated it. But I went in to give them. My mother and these three ladies who loved me dearly and who I loved at one time were sitting there. And as I walked into the living room, I tripped. And I fell in the middle of the bridge table. <laughs> and me and it went down and they went up. <coughs> and I'm laying down looking up and they're up looking down. And I hear... I see a tear run down somebody's face, and I hear my mother say, Get out of here! And my reaction was, Well, that's a fine attitude <laughs> to take with your only child. After all I've done for you, <laughs> don't dwell on that too long. And I picked myself up and got unshuffled and started upstairs, and a thought pierced me as I went up, I'll fix you, I'll kill me. It's called sanity, I believe. And God, I'm delighted with this. Boy, I'll kill myself and those old blisters will be sorry. So I went up into my room, into the closet where I kept the clothes, and I had those little, in the, you know, here down in the United States, you call them half pints. In Canada, we call them Mickeys, but they're the same thing for the same purpose. You know, the easy-to-pack-around variety. And I had them in my coats in varying stages of fullness or emptiness, depending on your condition. 
Depends how sick you were, whether they were half full or half empty, right? Right. And I went in and had a little drink, and I'm delighted with this. And I remember it was the 20th of November, and it was about 20 below zero. I remember, I don't know how the hell I remember that. I just do. There's a certain antifreeze effect to alcohol, but it ain't all it's kicked up to be. You get cold weather, but you ain't got nothing, Sam. We pile them up in the winter and bury them in the spring, them drunks, you know. They're stacked like cordwood. And I went walk through my room in the back part of the house on the second floor, and there was a balcony out there, and I walked out on the balcony, and a thought struck me. By God, that's what I'll do. I'll show them old turkeys. I'll, I'll jump off the balcony and kill myself. They'll be sorry. And God, I'm just delighted with this. So I walked back in to have a little drinky. And I, as I went back in, I passed a full-length mirror, and I noticed I had my new suit on. I'd had it on four days. But I thought, by God, I wouldn't want to get my new suit messed up here. So I took my new suit off, and I'm in my shorts. Now, I'm something in my shorts, I'll tell you. They visited me, them crazy people from Ontario, in my shorts this morning. The guys where I live at the hotel at home, they say, every time we call on you in your shorts, unless I don't want to blow my image, you know. So I'm in my shorts. I went in and had a little drink, and I went back out and looked at the balcony. It didn't look too bad. Came back out and had a little drink. I went down the other end, checked to see if the girls were still there. You know, what the hell, if you're going to commit suicide and they've gone, well, what, you know, right? And they were there doing what I now know as taking my inventory. In those days, we called it persecution, right? So I went back in. I'm delighted. I had another little drink, went out on the balcony in my shorts, no socks, nothing, just my shorts, jockeys, and I'm out there, and I climbed over the rail of the balcony and stood on the trough, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking about my funeral. <laughs> and I look back, it's kind of like Al Capone's, you know, 400 cars full of flowers, but no people. Then <laughs> I'm thinking, God, they'll be sorry. So I stood on the eaves trough for what it seemed like an eternity. I let myself duh, hung on Eve's trough for a few minutes thinking about how sorry they're going to be that they treated me like that and let go and fell three feet into six feet of snow. <laughs> Got up, brushed myself off, went over and rang the back doorbell. I'd forgotten my key. I don't know about your shorts, but mine ain't got pockets in them. <laughs> anyway, I hadn't planned on coming back. And my mother comes to the door, and there's the prodigal standing out there, just as blue as you can be. Because you don't say whatever color you are along with your shorts in 20 below zero. You start to tighten up a little. You pucker, baby, I'll tell you. <laughs> and my mother comes to the door, and there's the prodigal, who she loves more than life herself, standing there in the shorts, blue as hell. And she said, my God, what have you done? And as unconcerned as can be, I said, I just jumped off the balcony. And she said, oh, you poor dear, and I had her right there. <laughs> right there. She said, come in, I'll put you to bed. I had a hot bath, went to bed, got myself a little drinky. The next morning, we got up, I couldn't move. She told my father I had the flu. 
And his doctor came in the stool pigeon. And my father said, Tommy's not feeling good. You better go down the hall and see him. And I forgot to push the glass far enough under the bed. And this stool pigeon came in and saw the glass. He said, you got the flu? I said, yes. He said, well, you wouldn't drink so much as that. You wouldn't have the flu. I said, get out, you quack. <laughs> you know, I hated that man's guts for 10 years. He was the first doctor to phone me when I came to AA about an alcoholic, and I had to quit hating him. God, I so enjoyed hating him. <laughs> the next few years, I couldn't tell you anything about him because I don't know anything about him. I just don't remember. I still traveled. I still died inside. It got worse and worse and worse and worse. I did everything that I could do when I was not at home where the money was to get money. I never got caught. I would do whatever it required in order to get something for a drink. And I did it. And on January the 1st, 1956, just as full of booze as I could be, I talked to my first member of AA with any degree of interest or sincerity. Loaded. And there was a guy who was younger than I was. I was 28 years old, and I knew I was too young to be an alcoholic, so there must be a deeper problem, you know. And it was New Year's Day. I was down with my family. It's amazing how it happens, isn't it, to us? You know, if you'd have followed me around, I'd have followed you around. There was probably a thousand times before when you were laying in bed someplace you didn't want to be, coming apart at the seams, unglued, so sick you couldn't move a muscle. And you'd have said, today's the day that bum will see you. Can't get any worse than you get up and go and do it again. And you're lonely and you're scared and you're away. When it happened to me, I was home. I was surrounded by the people I loved. I'd been in ten times as much trouble, hurt ten times as much. I was as ten times as sick a thousand times in the day it happened. And I walked into this place. I walked into, there was a cocktail party or something. I went in with my family. And as I went in, I wasn't walking too good. I tripped over the front stoop and slid into the living room on my belly button. But he said, there's Tom. <laughs> it was an unusual entrance for me. I either went in that way or in and out that way. And I picked myself up, went in the kitchen, and here was a guy named Bernie. Nice lander. Younger than I was, I knew that. I'd known Bernie. We'd gone to school a little bit. We lived poles apart in the business of living. I'd heard he had a terrible drinking problem, lost his wife and kids, wound up on Skid Row in Toronto. And I heard he joined this AA thing because I was beginning to get memos. <laughs> yeah, some of those. They weren't Al-Anons in those days. They were just snoopy people. They'd leave an article on alcoholism over. I had a shredder long before Richard Nixon did. I'll <laughs> and I went in, he gave me a drink. I wished him a happy New Year. I wasn't sure it was New Year, but I said, happy whatever. That covers it. And it took a drink out of my drink and I put it down and I tapped him on the back and I said Bernie I want to talk with you he said fire away I said not here didn't want anybody to know I had a drinking problem <laughs> I just arrived on my belt buckle I've been pulled out of every ditch within a 50 mile radius of that town didn't want him to know I drank aren't we marvelous God we're great you know, don't mind if you're out barfing in the middle of Main Street it's Wednesday noon but geez don't let them find out you're going to an AA meeting you know Got to protect our reputation. <laughs> oh, God. He said, we'll go down to the basement. He opened up the door to the damnedest set of stairs I ever saw in my life. I said, after you, sir. Wanted to fall on him. <laughs> Put my hand on his shoulder and went down. His foot touched the basement floor. I said, Bernie, how the hell do you quit drinking? I can't quit drinking. 
And he turned around and didn't look like the people I'd talked to or talked to me. I hadn't talked to many, but they'd talked to me. He turned around and laughed, and I nearly hit him. If I could have lifted up my hand, I think I'd have... But you know, I knew in the fraction of a second he wasn't laughing at me. I knew how I was laughing. Jesus, it was as he'd been sober three months. It was his first Christmas and New Year's sober. He was 75 miles from his AA group. He left his big book at home. There was another member of AA. He was getting a little twitchy. He'd been full of drunks, up to his eyeballs in drunks and booze for six days, and out of the woodwork came a 12-step call. No wonder he laughed, you know. I read my big book, and it says, if you get in those situations, ask God to send you a drunk. And I'm arrogant enough to think that old Bernie was standing there saying, oh, God, send me a drunk, and in I slid. <laughs> right on time. I keep reminding him I saved his life. And God, he started to talk, and I loved the way he looked. He had the damnedest set of eyes. He smiled through his eyes and his face and his mouth. Everything about him was something else. Oh, God, I love drunks and alanons and alateens that smile. Gee, I hate these old turkeys who sit around the AA meeting saying, this is a serious business. <laughs> well, of course it is a serious business, but it doesn't mean look like you smell something all the time. God, you see, the only people I knew who didn't drink by choice belonged to the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Now, I don't know about yours, but ours weren't exactly a joyous-looking bunch of girls. Jesus, they were something of... They looked like they had a dead rat in their pocket. They talked about the joys of sobriety, and I thought, oh, Jesus. If that's it, I'll die drunk. I've seen preachers like that talking about the joys of Christianity. And I thought, for God's sake, smile. And I say to you, and I beg you with every vestige of feeling within me, is when a new drunk walks in the AA meeting in the name of God, go up and smile at him. Sure, he may think you're as phony as a $3 bill, because he hates people who smile. But you keep, I came back to my second meeting. Not because of all the profundity they laid on me at the first one, to see if they were still smiling. I didn't know anybody that smiled who didn't drink two days running. And I went to my first day meeting on January the 5th, 1956, and by God's grace, it hasn't been necessary for me to drink or pop pills or smoke anything in order to feel comfortable in the business of living. And I wouldn't have bet a nickel on me. Not a nickel. I came to AA shaking so bad, total strangers were waving back at me. <laughs> I walked in, sat down, they brought me a cup of coffee, I threw it right over my shoulder. <laughs> you know what that is, brethren. We call it the hump, you know. You can get it from here to here, and then it goes all to hell. <laughs> so you drink Coke. So I got fat. But God, I love the way you look. I heard a belly laugh for the first time in 10 years. Nearly scared me to death. You look so good, I thought you'd been pilling a little because I'd had a little run at that. My, one of my doctors in New Orleans told him I was having a little tension. He gave me a popcorn sack full of secondol tablets <laughs> with a verbal prescription that said, take one when you don't feel good. <laughs> I never felt good. So I popped and shopped and did. I had a pretty good time. But God, I love the way you look. In the name of God, when somebody walks into a meeting, smile at them and say we're glad. Have you noticed? 
I did when I went to my first day meeting. You know, I wasn't too good. I was. I've had a trouble making the door. I used to have that trouble drunk. Here I am sober, and I still can't make. And you know, have you noticed at your first meeting they grab you with two hands? Have you noticed? Good to see you. That's so you won't slip away. <laughs> I was a little wet when I got here. And if you'd have just grabbed me by the hand, I'd have popped right out. It was like grabbing the tail end of a catfish, you know. It'd have, away it went. He said, good to see you. I couldn't have left if I'd have wanted to. But you smiled. You smiled and you looked like you meant it. And I came back to my second meeting and I met my sponsor at the second meeting. And I don't think, I never asked him to be, I wouldn't ask that turkey to be my sponsor. He was appointed. They said, he's yours. And God, I thank God every day of my life for this guy. I thank God for the people that Franklin was talking about last night. My sponsor didn't say to me, there are no mush in a My sponsor didn't say to me, take it any way you want. My sponsor didn't say to me, don't worry about the spiritual part. My sponsor didn't say those things to me. My sponsor didn't say, hang around a few weeks, then read the book. He gave me the book said, give me five. <laughs> and they weren't five then. <laughs> Why, that bastard, he took... <laughs> he owes me a buck and a half. <laughs> On the phone him, collect tonight. I thank God. He said, read this book and see if you're in it. And he came down and sat beside me, and he said, you know, <laughs> he said, you've got my permission to die drunk if you want to. And I thought, now, that's a strange approach. <laughs> but you don't have to, and if you don't want to, read this book and do what it says. See if you're in it. Don't try and identify with us, Tommy, like you drank like I did or I like you. But read this book and see if you felt like we did. And if you felt even a little bit like these people felt and like I felt as we talked, then you're in the right meeting. And I read and I did, you see. Because every time I read a page of that book, I found out that I was identifying not here but from a belly button. I was identifying with the feelings in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I loved the way you looked and I loved the way you talked and I loved your frankness. And I came to AA... Believing in a God, but having no faith in anything but dollar bills and whiskey, and I wasn't short of either, and they hadn't let me down. My sponsor talked about God in a way I'd never heard it talked about. And he said, you've got to do these steps. You don't get a hiatus around here for six months before you do the steps. As soon as you get your brains out of hawk, and I'll tell you when that is, you'll do the steps. Yes, sir. I thought if you didn't do them, they sent you somewhere else, you know. And I couldn't think of anywhere else to be sent <laughs> on account of I had been there. <laughs> Somebody said, this is the last house on the block, and I believe him. I believe him. If you don't make it here, where are you going? Where are you going if you don't make it here? Tell me that. Psychiatry? Psychology? Medicine? Where are you going if you don't make it here? God, stay with us. 
I don't care if you're scared and if you're lonely and if you really don't believe it's going to work, if you believe it's a bunch of BS. Hang in there and stay close. Because if this don't work, we're doomed. Doomed. God knew this or he'd have never given us this thing. God knew that the teachers and the preachers, God love them, who tried so desperately for so many years. I have a record at home, and I'm going to shut up relatively soon. <laughs> God, you're something else. You ought to be. I think you all ought to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> I'll send you to mine. He's still drinking. <laughs> have you ever met an alcoholic psychiatrist? Now, there's a mixed-up son of a... Somebody gave me an old red menorah record of a talk Bill gave in 1947, 47 Bethy in Akron. And I played this one time. I, was, I had it for two months before I played it. I don't know what the hell I was doing. And I sat down one day and I was playing this record and a statement jumped out at me and slapped me across the face. The book does this, doesn't it? No matter how long you've been in AA, I don't care if you're 20, 30, 45 months, five days, every time you read that book, you're going to get slapped in the face by something you never saw before. It was there, but it wasn't relative. Oh, God knew what he was doing. And this thing slapped me in the face, and Bill says this, and it's interesting. Bill said, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a personal success story. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a personal success story. It is rather the story of our colossal human failure converted to the happiest kind of usefulness. The happiest kind of usefulness by that divine alchemy, the living grace of God. Nowhere has it ever been put more beautifully or more simply, even by Bill, than that day in Akron. The story of our colossal human failure as a man and a businessman and as a son and as a citizen and as everything converted to the happiest kind of usefulness. He didn't put... Bill didn't... Bill... <laughs> a terrible thing to say, but he was. Bill was like God. He didn't use words unnecessarily. Why did he say the happiest kind of usefulness? Why didn't he say converted to a useful life? God, that would have turned us off, wouldn't it? He said, converted to the happiest kind of usefulness. Smile to love one another. By that divine alchemy, the living grace of God. Everybody has said it today. Blanche said it. Ramona said it. Franklin said it. Rennie said it. Bethy said it. The thing that happened to us between then and now is the grace of God as manifested in the 12 steps of the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is what happened. A free gift, the grace of God. A free gift. I don't God, I walk down the street today and I'm about as anonymous as the post office. I get mail, Tom Breen, Alcoholics Anonymous, Canada. <laughs> Never miss a letter. Somebody in Montreal who can't read English is that's the drunk in Winnipeg. <laughs> I get her. But I agree. I don't violate my traditions. But I tell people who I know that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because a friend of mine said, if they don't know what brought about the change in your life, 
What are you an example of? Right? Right. We got to tell them. And I got my family and my citizenship, and I started to get whole and get well. And the loneliness and the hopelessness and the fear started to fall off me. And I did my steps, and I've done them a couple of three times. I don't tell people how to do it. God gets me crazy and said, we don't, our AA is different. Hell, your AA is different. I don't do it my way, I do it the way. Your book, same book's mine, right? Do you have a new copy from Missouri? <laughs> Vancouver, San Francisco? Say, RAA's different. The hell it's different. You may open the meeting with Alexander's Ragtime Band or something. <laughs> may have something again praying. You know, in Vancouver, they just close the meetings like a Rotary Club, you know. They don't believe in the Lord's Prayer. It smacks of religion. Says, isn't that strange? It's the only corner of the world that smacks of religion. And they keep running me out. I don't care how you open it or close it, or if you do. But there's only one way to stay sober that I know of and get freedom from the bondage of self, and that is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, applied to the best of my ability as I understand them one day at a time, and not drink. This is a not non-drinking fellowship. Did you know that? It's amazing how many of us have missed that. I got a guy in my group who can quote chapter and verse from the book, but he ain't quit drinking. So to think you missed something. You gotta lay down the sauce. I know God is something else. It really is. And I think about that. And I drove down to you because I, I'm, I'm like Blanche. I'm a coward in the air or anywhere else. I check on the pilot. You got a wife and kids? Yeah. Are you getting along? I ask him. <laughs> if he says, yeah, the bitch, I get another plane. <laughs> but I drove down and I drove through Iowa and through your beautiful state and I, your beautiful cornfields. You know, I could have done that for 15 years sober, and I wouldn't have seen what I saw Friday, yesterday, and Tuesday. Because you see, now I look, and I see what I see. Now I look, and I know what I'm looking at. Now I see you, and I see you as miracles of Almighty God and His grace. I look at your fields and our countries, yours and mine, and there are no borders in our society. You want to get across the border real quick? Tell them, find a red-faced immigration officer and tell him you're going to a name meeting. He <laughs> said, <So> go ahead. <laughs> he don't want to mess around with us. He's got a hangover that will kill an ox. He's all oh, one of those bastards. Send him through. So a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to an AMA, say this right in the middle of the line. Everybody looks, you know. But I always check them out. I, get, I always go to the guy who ain't looking too good in the morning. He's, <laughs> he says, what is the purpose of your visit to the United States? I said, an AA meeting. He says, go ahead. <laughs> 
And I send all my pigeons through him, too. We're going to get him one day. And he's one of yours. No, not one of ours. You love me without conditions. You love me without strings. I learned this from my family. I was sober five years and decided to buy back my mother's love. My father had left me, had passed away, and left me some money. So I decided to buy back something I had lost. So I bought her a new house, a new car, traded the new car in the month, bought her another one, which she didn't want even the first one. I filled the house up with the damnedest trinkets you ever saw. I come home arms loaded with garbage. And one day I'm home at dinner, and she sat me down after dinner, and she said, I want to talk to you after dinner. So I said, okay. So after we'd finished the dishes, we went into the den, and she said, Now, I don't want you to say anything until I'm finished. I said, Okay. She said, Exactly what price tag have you placed on me? And I reared up. She said, Shut up. I said, What do you mean? She said, I think you're trying to buy back something you haven't lost. She said, I want you to know, honey, that I loved you as much when you were laying on the kitchen floor Christmas Eve in your own vomit as I do now. I like you a lot better now but I loved you then. And when she told me that, I discovered that that was the relationship that God and I had, that he loved me the second I was conceived. And this is where I get along with my church sometimes when they tell me that to merit the love and mercy of God, you've got to be worthy. If that were true, we'd be dead. I think all you've got to be to merit the love and the mercy of any God or the God as I understand God is born the minute you're born, you're his kid, and if you're his kid, he loves you. He loves you. He had to love us because he allowed us to go to hell and come back. Hey, man, we got a deal going. Now, many years ago, I went to one of our local jails and I noticed some of the kids were here this afternoon from one of yours, and I was so glad to see them, because I was reared on institutional AA. And one of my present sponsors, a guy that spent 10 years inside the wall, and got his sobriety in there, and he's the most magnificent human being I've ever had the privilege of knowing. But I was going into a meeting in one of our local buckets one time, and there was a little guy there, and he gave me a copy of the Reader's Digest, and he said, Tom, I read this, I want you to have it. And there was an article in it that was called Forgiveness, the Saving Grace. And I'd like to share it with you because I think it has meaning for me and meaning for you, and I just throw it at you for what it's worth, and then I'll sit down and thank you for loving me. It was written by Ken Scudder, who was with the Osborne Association at that time, was one of Clint Duffy's deputies at San Quentin. And it's the story of the youngster who was doing time in St. Quentin. And he'd been in before, and he was just a kid. He'd gone to hell in a handbasket. I don't know if he was a drunk or not, but it sounded like it. Anyway, he was living in a hell of his own, like you and I do, and alcoholism, whether it's A.A. Alanon or Alateen. And he was due to be released. And while he'd been in there, of course, he hadn't heard from his family. He'd written, but they noticed he had no return mail. And before he was due to be released in three weeks, and he wrote a letter home, and it went something like this. He said, Dear Mom and Dad, as you know, I'm in this institution. 
I've written you and you haven't replied, and I understand why. I've known I've torn our name through the mud and I've torn your hearts out by the roots, and I know how terrible it is for you to write me at this address, and I understand why you haven't written. But I'm due to be released in three weeks, and I think I see things just a little differently now than I did before. And if you can find it in your heart to forgive me for what I've done and allow me to come home, I'll be grateful. And again, I don't want you to write to me here and tell me. I want you to not have to go through that pain. I'm getting out of here in such and such a day, and I'm taking the train out of San Francisco. And he lived somewhere between San Francisco and Los Angeles back in the valleys there. And he said, I'm catching the train. The train goes past that old outer field of ours where the cherry tree is. And on such and such a day, if you can find it in your heart to forgive me for the tragedy I've caused your life and the broken hearts, if you can forgive me and want me to come home, go out on the tree and tie a white ribbon on it. And I'll be on the train, and if I see it, I'll get off. And if I don't see it, I'll go on, and you'll never hear from me again. And I'll understand your son, Jim. Well, in those places in those days, and I guess today, when you write a letter, somebody reads it. And they read the letter, and they knew this kid. And they knew he was an uptight kid. God, that's a beautiful phrase given to us by the kids of the 60s. Uptight. For this bunch, it's most apropos. And of course it did. He got uptight. He couldn't eat and he couldn't sleep because he had the terrible blackness inside him not knowing. How many of us have gone to our first AA meeting and were going home after not knowing who was going to be there? And if they weren't, we knew why they shouldn't be. How many of us came home after an alcoholic bash not knowing what we were hell we were going to find. And, of course, he got physically sick at his stomach, and he couldn't eat, and he couldn't sleep, and he lost weight, and they watched him very closely because they thought he might jump off the range. And finally, Clinton Dovey said to Scudder, Ken, you better go with this kid. He's so uptight he'll jump off the Bay Bridge. So the day came for his relief, and they went into San Francisco, and they got on the train. The minute the kid sat down at his seat, he put his nose against the glass to wait and see what was on the tree. And they had four hours to run. The only time that kid left his nose off the glass was to go again to the little boy's room and to be physically sick in his stomach from this terrible blackness inside. This thing, this will they, will they, will they, is there anybody, is there anybody that you and I know and Alanons know and Alateens know in the same intensity that alcoholics know. And eventually they came to the field and there was the tree and there wasn't one white ribbon on it. There was 5,000 white ribbons on it. Dear God, it was a quivering mass of white ribbons. And it was like somebody had pulled a plug out of this kid's tummy. And all the loneliness and hopelessness and fear and futility and guilt and remorse through the simple act of forgiveness in his life that happens in our life through the simple process of total surrender. In flows the love of the people in AA, the love and respect of our families, a joyous way of living, and a faith and a trust and a partnership with a loving God as we understand him. We got the best deal going of anybody on the face of the earth, and I love you and thank you for my life. Thank you. Have you ever, huh?
Stay up unbelievable, won't it? Get up. Please. Thank you. Oh, God. Fabulous. Stay up. The dance to wet bar in the back. Let's join hands and close the meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. And I'm taking the train out of San Francisco. And he lived somewhere between San Francisco and Los Angeles, back in the valleys there. And he said, I'm catching the train. The train goes past that old outer field of ours where the cherry tree is. And on such and such a day, if you can find it in your heart to forgive me for the tragedy I've caused your life and the broken hearts, if you can forgive me and want me to come home, go out on the tree and tie a white ribbon on it. And I'll be on the train, and if I see it, I'll get off. And if I don't see it, I'll go on, and you'll never hear from me again. And I'll understand your son, Jim. Well, in those places, in those days, and I guess today, when you write a letter, somebody reads it. And they read the letter, and they knew this kid. And they knew he was an uptight kid. God, that's a beautiful phrase given to us by the kids of the 60s. Uptight. For this bunch, it's most apropos. And of course it did. He got uptight. He couldn't eat and he couldn't sleep because he had the terrible blackness inside him, not knowing. How many of us have gone to our first AA meeting and were going home after not knowing who was going to be there? And if they weren't, we knew why they shouldn't be. How many of us came home after an alcoholic bash, not knowing what we were hell we were going to find? And of course he got physically.